Welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. I'm your host, Pyle Berry. With over a decade of a blended experience in clinical psychology and global leadership development, I've dedicated my career and life purpose to empower women to believe I deserve a seat at the table and it's about damn time. But how do you create synergy between who you are and how you lead? On this podcast, we address that inner critic holding you back, release narratives that no longer serve you, and explore how to use your leadership platform to make an impact around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Simply put, I cut out the bullshit. I'm here to share inspiration, practical tips, and have challenging conversations with other badass individuals who are shifting the narrative for all women. So let's stop apologizing for who we are and rise together as the unapologetic woman. This podcast is a Soul Fire production. All right, welcome to The Unapologetic Woman. I am your host, Pyle Berry, and I am so excited to have Deanna Singh here with me. She is an incredible thought leader that in the space of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I want to say a warm welcome to you. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing here, and it's an honor to be able to spend some time with you. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited. I'm so excited that, about the wealth of information that our audience is going to get from you today. But I want to start with having you introduce yourself and talk about, you know, some of the most like pivotal moments that have happened in your life and your career. Sure. So do we have 1700 hours? Because <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> So I think by way of introduction, what I would say uh, is that I really am um, at my core, a social entrepreneur. I have spent my entire career really trying to figure out ways to shift power to marginalized communities. I think that that's my purpose in life. And so for me, I think the biggest moments, the moments of pivot, the moments that have been the most impactful are those moments where I've stopped and reflected and asked myself a key question. And the key question was, am I doing the most that I could do when it comes to shifting power to marginalized communities. And I've used that question to really guide me through all of the various stages of of my career. I've been really fortunate to be in a lot of different sectors, a lot of different levels, and a lot of different places um, all around the world. But again, I think every single one of those moments of transition or moving or going deeper into something, I always came back to that core question. Am I, am I doing the most that I can do? Or could is there a way to exponentially impact more people uh, positively in the world? That's amazing. I think you brought up a couple of really great points. One being that you know, with entrepreneurship, a lot of times people go into it because they've got a great idea and they really want to make it happen and they feel confined in other spaces where they can't really truly be themselves. But with that great idea comes a lot of responsibility. It comes a lot of really reflection of themselves as well of like, well, how much of me is coming through in this? Or am I going on this idea that is now being shared with others and then continuously being reformed and reformed and reformed where it may move away from what your internal uh, initial purpose was. So I really love that you brought that up. And of course, what your entire purpose is to support marginalized communities. You know, can you touch on 
what made you so passionate about this? So I think that there's a number of things that really put me in a position to understand that that was my purpose really early on in life. I mean, I have had Mm -hmm. a lot of different experiences that have shown me the power of being able to work um, within communities and work alongside communities and, and what can happen when people are allowed to thrive. Like I've just, I've seen it in so many aspects of my life. I think one of the biggest things and biggest motivators is just where I come from. Mm-hmm. In order for me to do many of the things that I've been able to do, be the first in my family to go to college, travel all around the world, um, try all of these different, you know, awesome ventures and, mm-hmm. and have the courage to do it. A lot of that has been because of people who made sacrifices for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think really early on, I, I before I had like an eloquent way to talk about what my purpose is, I used to say it even more simply than than what I say now, which is, I think my purpose is is to really figure out a way to multiply the blessings and experiences and opportunities that I've been given because I felt a sense of responsibility. I mean, Mm-hmm. I was given a lot of this stuff, right? Like, and um, and it was through other people's sacrifices. And so why wouldn't I move it forward? So I think that's like where, where it started from. And then I think what, like that was the seed, but what it made it grow, right? What, what watered it was being able to see again and again and again, mm-hmm. how much could change and how right. much wonderful, you know, how many wonderful things you could you could build when your focus isn't on money and your focus really isn't on geography and your focus isn't on title, but mm-hmm. your focus is on this greater purpose. That's really nice. I mean, like just thinking about that, you know, where when you think about big organizations and the impact they have, obviously it's really grand because of just, you know, the mere size of them. But what you bring up is a really good point is that the responsibility or just the um, ownership that we can take on about the impact we can have even as one person. And when you're going into, you know, uh, marginalized communities, when you're going into business or you're going into um, working on a passion project that is impacting a community, like you are actually taking on the weight of what that means. And so, you know, when you think about like the, all the different projects that you've worked on and all the different things you've done, one of the things that, you know, you are currently working on, I believe is called, um, the phallusim. I want to make sure I'm saying it correctly. The phallusim. The phallusim. Sorry about that. The <laughs> phallusim, which is documenting your failures and where you learn from that. And I think that's so important because, you know, just in human beings, right. And especially living in a, in a society today, that's so focused on perfect, everything showing up perfectly, whether it's on social media and being compared to like keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it may be. And there's a lot of conversation in leadership always that talks about learn from your failures, you know, and some of the top leaders talk about it, but to actually put it into practice, it's really hard. And, <laughs> you know, to actually see that. So talk to me about that. How, sure. how do you put that into actual practice, especially for someone, you know, a woman of color who is just kind of getting started into that space. So one of the things that I did was literally put together a fails me. And so mm-hmm. it's just the idea of a resume, but, you know, listing out your, your biggest failures. Um, it used to be up on my site. I'm not sure if it, if the link is still active or if we need to reactivate <laughs> it, but I did that. And I did that intentionally because I think it was important to say, here are the places where I messed up. Mm-hmm. Here are the places where I definitely could have done better. And 
more importantly, like, here's what I learned from them. And so the fails of May was just a, a nice exercise. And it started, uh, the whole concept came literally while I was giving a presentation to the I don't know, 400, 500 people who are all HR professionals. And in the middle of this presentation, I said to the group, like, I have a challenge for you. Instead of collecting resumes, what would happen if you switched it all the way over, right? You like flipped it on its head. And instead of asking people like about their mountaintops, you ask them about their valleys. What would that do to your process? How, how would that change who you might bring onto your teams? And I really put that challenge out there for them. And then after I finished, I thought, wait, I should do that for myself, right? I should talk. I always talk about my, my valleys, but I should make it really, really public. And I think the reason why that's powerful is because those are the moments that build your character. Right. Those are the moments that, you know, define who you're going to be and define the kind of leader you're going to be and define the kinds of risks you're willing to take. And so I'm really proud of my failures. Did they suck while I was going through them? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. But I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think the other thing that's really powerful about this idea of creating a fails in May is I, I do have it or did have it public and we'll make it public again or, or share it with anybody mm -hmm. who, who wants to. I did a whole video series on this where like week after week, I just like laid out my, my failure. The reason why I did it is because if we talk about it, if we share it with other people, then they don't have to make the same mistakes that we did. And I think mm -hmm. that as leaders, we have a responsibility not to hide those mistakes, right? To share mm -hmm. them so that I always tell people, look, I knocked my head up against all these brick walls. You go, let me tell you about this. And then you go find another brick wall and you come back and tell me about that one. Like <laughs> what, what sense right. does it make to keep hitting our heads up against the same, the same ones right. over and over again? So I think there's two reasons, you know, one is like acknowledging it, understanding it, recognize it, the growth that you can have individually. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's so much potential in how you lead others and how you help others grow in, in naming naming your failures. I think that's really well said. It just, um, you know, especially when you're looking at the leadership group and you're looking at how do you create psychological safety in your environment? How do you create a place where there's more empathy that happens? And I know that just from my own experience of when I've had leaders that open up and especially in the moments where I am just questioning myself, I'm criticizing myself, I'm paranoid about how others are perceiving me because of something that I did that was, you know, had a failure around it. And when I've had somebody open up to me and tell me about an experience that was really similar, especially at the same place in their career trajectory of where I was, that has helped me get closer to my leaders. That has helped me feel more invested in them as well. And just, you know, okay, they get me. And it, kind of removes the shaming. Absolutely. And if people don't have the courage to try new things and they don't have the courage to fail, you're going to stagnate. Right. You're not, you're not going to grow, you know? And so I think it, it helps build up that competency, not just on the mm -hmm. individual level, but it can also help significantly on the team level and unlike the organizational cultural level. Definitely. And I think that, you know, when we look at um, our teams or we look at, you know, and we, if we kind of mirror that into communities that we live in and we look at that, you know, we want to have this like sheltered environment. We want to be living in these bubbles. And what happens with that is that we create this place where, you know, resilience doesn't get built as much because if we're not letting people fail and we're covering up for them, they're not even realizing that they're failing and someone's just covering up for their work. And that even, you know, shows up in our communities as well is that when we surround ourselves with people that just continuously protect us, it's actually inhibiting us from growing. 
And then when we're in a position of leadership and, you know, you're moving into that place, you don't realize what those opportunities that you had to learn from, and then you're going to make those mistakes and you're going to wonder why it's not working this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you carry those, you carry those things forward. And the other thing is, is like, you know, you have to kind of learn this skill. And so I tell people fail on purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally like go out there and be like, Hey, I'm going to try something that's so out there. And when I go into this, my assumption is that the first 10 times I try this, I'm going to fail on purpose. And so sometimes I'll pick up like, just, you know, when I'm like, man, I need to practice some failure, not to say I don't get enough of it in my daily dosage, you know, like, <laughs> but yeah, every once in a while, I'm like, right. I, just, I need to practice what this looks like. I'll pick up something that I know I am going to be awful at, you mm -hmm. know, like, I don't know. Recently I made popsicle stick houses. I had all the things <laughs> on Pinterest. I sort of, you know, I bought a box of like a hundred mm -hmm. or 300, you know, popsicle sticks. And I was like, this is going to be gorgeous. It's going to look like this mansion. And you know, this, I mean, the thing is like lopsided, <laughs> you know, you could probably just touch it and it would fall apart, but right. I needed to practice that. Right. Like I needed to, to get into a space where it's, it's okay. Like I like my little, you know, mm-hmm shabby house thing that I what, can't even say it's a house stick thing that I built. <laughs> right. Right. But you put, you put effort into it. You tried yes. it. Yeah. And you know, I think that there's actually some organizations, um, that have started to add failure as a competency and measuring that, which yeah. I think is amazing, you know, it's because awesome. it's like the minute you start recognizing and because what happens is that when you're putting that as a competency and part of your culture and you're recognizing that part of it is like, how much are you learning from failure? It then allows leaders, it allows individuals to feel like, okay, this is truly accepted. We're not just talking about it. Absolutely. So, you know, the, to move up, to move from there and talking about you know, failure, this is, I feel like an area that, you know, of course everyone struggles with, but women particularly really struggle with. And when you come from a, a minority family, you know, it becomes even more amplified. So can you tell me about a time for you specifically that you recognize how you were able to fight through that, you know, obstacle or the challenges that are put on by others, especially because of the work that you're in, you know, working in diversity space, working in having that voice, going out there, speaking over and over again, and especially what we've seen today with 2020, with everything that's happened, you know, one of the biggest issues that comes up is that there's a lot of performative work that's being happened. And organizations are doing work around, you know, well, we were, they're doing a reaction, right? And so, but how are they, what can they do to take it one step further? And how are you able to really amplify that voice? So I think there's a couple of questions um, mm -hmm. baked in there. So you tell me if I, if I miss any, but I think one, you know, big one, just thinking about, um, an experience where, where I failed that it was more consequential than my, my popsicle stick popsicle stick. <laughs> situation. Right. Um, you know, there, there's, there's lots, there's been times where I have, uh, decided that I was going to make an investment in a person. Mm -hmm. There have been times where I've decided I was going to make an investment in a strategy, right? And at the end of the day, it didn't pan out. It was a lot of energy or effort and not just my own, but the teams. And we get to the other end of it and we're like, oh man, well, that didn't work, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a couple of, of things that happen in that moment. I think one, there's a recognition that there's a failure. And I think that that's important. You know, I think it's important to right. be able to sit Just with have that the awareness. For, yeah. And sit with it, call it what it is, like 
be uncomfortable, kind of be mad or whatever it is. Cause there's mm-hmm. an emotional component to it that I think is important that you don't rush through. A lot of times, you know, we have a failure and we start to whisper, we right. don't talk about it, you know, or, or <laughs> we just like hush it or we try and plow through it and just right. get to the next thing. But I think there's an importance of like sitting in that discomfort. Mm-hmm. Then I think the next stage of it is okay. We've sat in it. And and a lot of times I'll say like, hey, I'm going to set a timer, you know, and maybe that timer is 15 minutes. Maybe Mm. it's like, we're going to be here for a week and we're going to come back to it, whatever it seems appropriate for it. But then, but then let's come back to it. And when we come back to it, that's our opportunity to say, what did we learn? Like Mm -hmm. what, where, where, what could we have done differently? Where, where could we have pivoted? What, what are we going to carry forward with us? What might we try again? What might we never want to try again? (laughs) Right. Like, like what, what does this, what does this look like? Is there, is there other things that I could have done to support you or that I would have felt better if you had supported me in this way? Um, What are some good questions that we didn't ask this first time? And there's all kinds of stuff that you can kind of go through when you're talking about the learning component. But I think that's the, so first is like, be in your feelings. The second yeah. is, you know, go through the learning component with it. And then I think the third thing is to decide what you're going to do with it moving forward. Mm-hmm. Because if it's just a mistake and you get stuck there and you don't really learn from it, and then you, maybe you do think about all the things you did wrong, but you don't really think about how you might apply it moving forward. I don't think you, you take the full um, impact of what that right. failure could be, right? Like the full potential of it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that's, that. I mean, there's lots of ways to process. I would say that's a very simplified version of something that we do pretty repetitively here, mm-hmm. you know, in our company. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important to figure out what your, what your failure routine looks like and how you handle it and, and, and how you move forward from it. So yeah. That I think uh, was was one part of the question, and I I took such a long time to answer it. Now I can't remember, <laughs> pile what the rest was. <laughs> no, you're fine. I mean, I lo- I love that answer because I think that that that's the that's the part that's missing is just that you know the feelings, staying in your feelings, and actually accepting that like I did this. Because the more that you try to move away from it, and the more that you try to deny it, it actually just shows up in different ways, and it gets you agitated, frustrated, and then you end up displacing it onto somebody else. Yeah. So, when you're able to take that ownership of recognizing like, okay, this is where I'm at right now. I'm really frustrated and, and, and it sucks. It's okay that I made a mistake here, but how am I going to use this as a learning opportunity and not to go to that learning opportunity immediately? Yes. Because, you know, that's the other part is that when we talk about self-growth and we talk about self-development and, you know, especially as leaders, there's still this focus about checkmark, checkmark, checkmark. Like I, you know, okay, I, I failed. Great. Okay. What do I learn from this? All right. Now, how do I move on? Done. But we're so quick to just always moving forward that we don't sit with it and we don't recognize that, okay, what have, is this even a one-time mistake or is this a repetitive pattern? How has it shown up in different parts of my life? Because the thing is that whatever that failure is or that uh, weakness is, guaranteed it's showing up in different places, but just showing up differently. So if you take that moment to just sit with it, you're going to start having those aha moments and realizing like, oh yeah, okay. It's coming (laughs) up there too. Ooh, All right. There it is again. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I tell people it's like, sit, but don't get stuck. You know, like sit, but don't get stuck. Cause it's important too that you're like, okay, there's another phase to this. Right. And I, that's why I love the, the time blocking it, you know, give yourself that, half an hour, give yourself, and depending on the size of the failure, right? Maybe you right. may need two days to <laughs> overcome it. But the minute that you recognize you're starting to sulk, that's when you got to catch yourself and be like, all right, now I'm just I'm like, 
yeah, it's time to move on to the next stage. Yep. It's so, so funny because we literally will set a timer sometimes in our house and I'll uh-huh. be like, okay, like, I feel like I need like 15 minutes, you know, and I'll just walk around the house, <laughs> like grumbling under my breath and, you know, kind of get it out. The timer goes off and I'm like, okay, let's go, let's do it. Love right. It. And, and I think another big thing that we have taught ourselves, and this is in framing, we've taught mm-hmm. ourselves to really celebrate failure. So yes. like my kids, it, they'll say this to me all the time, like something will happen. I'll be like, oh man, I really messed that up. And they'll be like, Congratulations. <laughs> You I failed. love that. That's amazing. And, you know, and it sounds so like, but it's so good. And I'm so right. glad that they're, that they're learning that. Right. Because, because they have a different perception of what, of what failure looks like. And sometimes right. it's too soon. And I'll be like, it's too soon. I'm not <laughs> ready. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. They'll bring you another popsicle stick house to make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's too soon, That's but it's so- important. You got to think about that. You got to think about mm-hmm. like, how much power are you giving the words inside of your head? Yeah. Well, you know, with that, I I actually now want to pivot to a different question instead, which is that when we talk about failure and when we talk about, you know, celebrating that, I know in my household, just being an Indian household, you bring home a 95 and they're like, that's nice. Why wasn't it a hundred? You know? And it's like always wondering why you didn't get that extra point or that extra, there's all that pressure that gets put on. And that's where that, you know, perfectionism, can stem from. And, you know, I want to know from you, what was it like in your household? I mean, you grew up in a household where it's like your mom is black, your dad's Indian. What was that like? Oh, I mean, of course we had those pressures, right? And at Mm -hmm. the same time, we also had, um, you know, an environment that wasn't always conducive to being able to get the things that, you know, so it was like, it was like, do better, study harder. Oh, by the way, could you help us make roti? Right. And then, you know, and you're like, (laughs) But which one is it, friends, right? Because these are two competing, you know, competing priorities. Right. But I think the one thing uh, that was really my my saving grace in all of it, because yes, there was always high expectations. And Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't from my family, I knew that I had a sense of responsibility because, because they made a lot of sacrifices in order for me to get a high quality education, to be able to go to college, to be right, to be the first to do many of these things. And so Mm -hmm. I knew that there was a sacrifice that was being made. And so I think I put an added, they had their own level of pressure and I added, added to it. Yeah. Yeah. I added to it. Right. But I think my saving grace, yeah. Through, through all of it was, um, the fact that it wasn't connected to my own self-worth, mm, what it was connected so to and, and what my family really like emphasized for me is that my measure of success wasn't about how well I was doing. My measure of success was how, about how well those around me were doing. Oh, interesting. That's definitely a different perspective. Yeah. You know, and I think that that perspective is what allowed for me to really grow um, because it really gave me the, it, it just gave me a different way to define success. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, yeah, I could, I could move back to that. I could always count on that. And that makes a lot of sense with your purpose being so driven in supporting marginalized communities and wanting to see the impact that you can make. And as you say, you know, you want to build bridges And so growing up in a family where, you know, you grew up with two cultures, how much of that, you know, really played a large part in and influencing you 
to the work that you're doing today? Oh, I mean, it was completely paramount to it, right? Because Mm -hmm. I got to see very closely how these two worlds that on paper, people would be like, what? This doesn't go together. What are you talking about? You're going to have greens and cornbread and sag and dal. Like, (laughs) what what are you talking about? That doesn't doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got to see it work every single day. And I got to see how beautiful that is. And I got to see um, the power of really creating these inclusive spaces. And so when I think about uh, what, you know, like what, what formed me and what formed my opinions, I think the other kind of big component of it is that it it taught me not to, to take what is, but to think about what could be. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And to sort of defy what the, what the norms were at a very early age, I learned the ability to do that. I learned that it wasn't so scary to, to try things that again, didn't, you know, always look like they go together on, on paper and to, right. and to try and make it work. Um, so absolutely. I, there's, I always tell my parents that it's one of the greatest blessings they ever gave uh-huh. me was, was being able to be, to come yeah. up in a, in a biracial family. You know, and I think that that's also really interesting that you brought up is where on paper, people think that like, oh, these two don't go together. And, you know, I see it and I hear it all the time. And what I think is really interesting is when you look at the Indian population, right? And Indians that come over, I mean, we can be as honest as possible. Indians can be very racist and they are very judgmental. Um, And they follow this like course of, you know, do your homework, get education, go to the best school, get a job, get married, have your kids and live in this neighborhood. And when they come over from India and they have their own adversities, right? That they fought to come here and to make home and to create this uh, better home for their kids and better opportunities for their kids. Something else that they take on as well as um, those other stereotypes of the majority of like, okay, so I'm not, you know, when I'm coming to this country, I'm also learning about what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. And you see that. And it kind of continues to that when you live in communities where you are just surrounded with people that look like you, speak like you, act like you, and you continue to have this like very, um, you know, exclusive, inclusive community, right? But you actually got to experience bringing two cultures together and what that is. And I mean, you are literally a makeup of that, right? And so when you think about these, um, and this is something I feel really passionate about is just talking to South Asian individuals and helping them realize how similar actually we are to the black culture. There's so much in common that we have. And so how do you use that, you know, your platform to help inform, to raise awareness around that similarity, to show that, you know, what you're thinking is actually not what it's like. And, you know, your testament to that. Yeah. You know, so I think um, what was really interesting is that I was, um, I was able to have love mm-hmm. in both communities and, you know, every, every community has challenges or things that they're, that they're trying to work through, but because I, I had people who loved me and people who trusted me in both communities. I think that that created a really unique opportunity to have conversations that maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable having otherwise and to challenge some of those norms. And so I think one of the big things was, yeah, I had, I had awkward conversations often. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, there were times where I felt excluded from both cultures. Uh, yeah. There were times where I had to check somebody in kind of what their interpretation was and um, you know, the way that they were seeing seeing the world. So all of those moments existed, but I think the power was understanding 
that I came, I had a basis of love. Right. And so that in the midst of all of that, that at the end of the day, it was harder for them to say things or to believe things or to, you know, push things forward because, you know, because, because they knew me. And, and I think like at the core, so you might be thinking, well, I don't, I'm not biracial. I don't know how I could impact this world or step into that space. But the thing is, is that if you are creating relationship right mm-hmm. at the core of relationship, any relationship it's, is love. Right. It, it's being able to trust people. It's being able to open up. And so I got to do that at a very young age and got to practice it and do it. But everybody has the, the ability yep. to be that intersection and to create those bridges. If you are willing to put yourself into a position where your primary focus isn't educating, isn't showing people that they're so wrong, isn't, but your primary focus is creating relationship and then knowing that those other things can come after. I really like that. You know, it's, um, I, I feel like, you know, in all these conversations that I've been having, it's just like relationships and the key to that. And also just having more empathy, right? Because I think people also get confused with what the word empathy truly means. And, you know, they think that, well, I haven't been in that situation, so I don't know how to be empathetic towards. It's like, well, that actually is the definition of empathy. The definition of empathy is that even though you haven't been in the situation, you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, that you can take a situation that someone has gone through, reflect back and think of like, okay, so what is the core emotion that this person's feeling? They sounds like in their story, they're feeling really hurt. They're feeling dismissed. Mm-hmm. They're feeling devalued. Has there been a time in my life that I felt devalued, that I felt dismissed? What was that like? And then you use that emotion to have empathy for somebody else. And I think that, you know, especially in our environment today, and, you know, I want to kind of bring that up because, you know, for the audience, I know this is going to be out in uh, the new year, but Deanna and I are speaking like literally in the midst of election week right now. So, <laughs> so there's a lot going on this week and, and, you know, not to give everyone PTSD about this week, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, as we're living and breathing and talking about it right now, and we're waiting for, you know, we're on day two or day three now of waiting for the, the results. Um, what does that look like when, you know, we've had a year where, and just in general, I think that there's been the struggle of this lack of empathy and we're trying to bring empathy back. And when we talk about it in the space of diversity, when we talk about it in the space of, you know, my marginalized communities, how do we, you know, really look at based off of whatever the results are going to be. So for example, if Biden does win, how does that change the course of your work with marginalized communities? How do you amplify that more? It doesn't matter with who the president is in this space. So I think that empathy, um, I I don't know that it, that it matters. I think empathy is Mm going to be required of us regardless. Um, One of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit is thinking about people who are on the opposite side of the political spectrum from where I am, Mm -hmm. thinking about how I have a really wonderful opportunity um, to practice my empathy because I think it's easy to be empathetic to those that we might, you know, feel closer to, or that in some way or another reflect our values or Mm -hmm. that, you know, we have some kind of, some kind of an affinity, even if it, you know, you like the same sports team as me or some, something, right. right? That, That it's easier to have empathy when we can find those connections, but when it's harder to find those connections, it's harder to have empathy. And so I've been, you know, just personally reflecting a lot on how one of the biggest challenges we're going to have moving forward, because it was 
regardless again of what of what the results may be to our future selves yeah. like regardless like there's one thing that's really clear and that is that we have a lot of division in the country there yeah. isn't a strong pull you know one one direction or the other really anywhere and mm-hmm. so since everything was on that line right and and was so close to that line the way that we move forward is we figure out how we bring more of us back into the middle. And we yeah. don't do that unless we understand what the other side, you know, is, is feeling, regardless of what side you're on, really like pushing ourselves to understand what the other side may be thinking and feeling and seeing. And so I think this, the greatest challenge, like the future of our, of our country really lies in our ability. Mm-hmm. Again, no matter who is president, doesn't, you know, like the future of our company will rely on how well we're able to empathize with one another. I completely agree. And, you know, I think there's a couple of things that you touched on that really speaks to this one being that relationships and building that and looking at somebody from a different perspective and a diff- completely different polar opposite place from you. And the second being that, you know, you've had an opportunity to travel the world. I've had an opportunity to travel the world. I grew up all over the world, like, you know, and so I learned about different cultures and ethnicities and, you know, people from a very young age, but how do we create that, you know, space for people that live in, you know, to be honest, like in very like uh, insular places? Because so, for example, like I've always grown up in big cities and they're always in blue states. Um, and when I lived in Chicago uh, for the last four, four and a half years, I actually had an opportunity to go down to a small town um, south of Springfield even. And a friend of mine worked there. So I went to go visit her. And that was my first time actually going into like deep rural Illinois and Midwest. And I saw what life was like there. I saw the abandoned homes. I saw the places, the schools that were converted into like meth centers. Like you saw that, you saw the, just the complete neglection that they've had. And that from their perspective, I get it you know, just being there, but trying to then explain that to friends that live in New York city or live in, you know, Los Angeles or wherever, where they have just surrounded themselves with only, you know, other Democrats or whatever it may be in liberal spaces. How do you explain that? How do you like help someone who's never left their country, never left their city, never left even like the, the home that they grew up in, you know, ever, and maybe just moved a block or two away to seeing and building those relationships. So I think that there's so much power in the technology that we have these days. Mm -hmm. And I think that right now, a lot of it is used to create even more insular communities, but there's also uh, the other side of it, right? There's the opportunity to create communities that are much more diverse and more broad. I had a teacher write me the other day and I've heard this phrase before, but it, it was just really endearing. And she's like, I've always been a armchair traveler, right? Meaning that she always used books to really expand her Mm. consciousness. And so as we think about, you know, literature and we think about Audible and we think about Netflix and, you know, all of our social media platforms, there is a real way to be able to create access to worlds that exist beyond our own in a way that's unprecedented. Mm -hmm. I mean, with the click of a couple of buttons, I can see things that I could only you know, maybe really in a, an encyclopedia when I was a kid, maybe, right. Right. right? If, if I could afford it or, and like now we could just do it. It's, it's no big deal. I can even see it in real time. 
right? If, right. if I push the right, the right configuration of buttons. And so the question is though, how do you build that curiosity? Mm-hmm. How do you get people curious enough to look beyond what they already have? The access is not the point. It, it's right. not the problem the way that it was before. Now the, the problem I think is really around curiosity. How do we, how do you get people to even want to understand? Because it's terrifying, right? It's terrifying to know that there might be another world that's completely polar opposite to the one that you live in. And also one that could be literally the neighborhood, right? five minutes away from you. Yeah. But I mean, isn't that the basis of every scary movie? I don't know because I don't watch it. Right. But I feel like every scary movie is like, wow, there's a whole other world you didn't know existed. And you, yeah. and, you know, and it's, it, and it's, you opened the door and there it came out. The chainsaw, Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we we're so we're, we're, we're terrified of that. Like right. that is, that is literally what our horror is made of. Mm-hmm. So how do you counter that and ki- create curiosity? I think that is the challenge. Mm-hmm. That is the challenge. That's the modern day challenge that we have in front of us. How do you, how do you do that? And I think that, you know, with everything that has happened and you're right, like technology can be really great, but it can also be very um, insular and, you know, with algorithms that just continue to give you and feed you exactly what you want to hear, what you want to see, that's what happens. Um but then when you're, you know, looking at these opportunities of what we have today and we're raising more awareness around the need of diversity of thought, how as a woman entrepreneur who is scaling her business, who has gone from being on her own to now having a team and starting to really think about that space, how do you make sure that you include that diversity of thought? How do you kind of create that curiosity for them to make sure that, you know, they're not just filling those seats with individuals that think like them. So on my team, how are we creating more diversity like than thought? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I think that one of the things that we've done with intention is make sure that our team really does come from very different backgrounds. So our team, though small, we are mighty and uh, we have a strong international representation. So we are spread all, all literally all across the world. So I think that's, that's one, one big thing. Um, and again, we did that with intention. I think a second thing is that because we deal in this content and we spend a lot of time in this content, we do as much as we can sharing what we're learning and and sharing the places where we're having challenges. I think that this is going to be a space where we have to be even more intentional as we grow because... Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're growing exponentially, which is which is really great, but it comes at the cost of being able to be part of every one of those interviews and part of every one of those, you know, dialogues. And so I think that's where you really think about your systems mm-hmm. and your structures um, and make sure that those are being constantly reviewed for for that diversity of thought. I really like that. I think that, you know, as people are starting to build their own teams and thinking about, you know, it's not just a place of what are my weaknesses in terms of my skill sets, right? Like you're a big picture thinker, you need someone who's more in the weeds, sure. But also thinking about that by having people that are on your team that come then represent different population groups, different demographics, that you're actually also then allowing yourself opportunity to tap into communities that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about. And that is, you know, another benefit of having diversity of thought just within your team and to start thinking about that, that as you're building it on, what do you really want your company to represent? And does your 
team show that. So I really like that you touched on that, you know, and talked about what that means for your team and for your company. I want to ask you in your workspace and as you've grown as a social entrepreneur, who are some women that have played a pivotal role in helping you see that you really can, you know, define the odds and you can move into and create bridges and break systems that, you know, are unnecessary. The first person that comes to my mind is my, my grandmother. Mm. She was this little bitty woman that we called Big Mama. She had nine children. Wow. Uh, She was a nursing assistant because at the time, Black women weren't allowed to be full-on nurses, but she had all the duties and responsibilities Mm -hmm. of a full-on nurse. And so to watch the way that she moved through the world was a really a great, my greatest leadership uh, experience by far any, you know, thinking about, I can't think of anything that even comes close to it. She had an ability to come into a room, be the same person everywhere she went, bring joy, Mm. say what was on her mind. Um, She had a way of bringing people into the conversation. One of the things that she would say, and I think it's just my, one of my favorite pictures of her because she did it all the time. She'd walk into a room and she'd point at you with her finger and she would say, I see you. It's such a simple thing, but so powerful. And I have this beautiful picture of her, you know, pointing at the camera and you could see like, that's what she was saying. I I see you. (laughs) And she did. She saw, Mm -hmm. she saw everybody and she went to places that were really uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, another like fun story I'll just share real quick is she, I would go to her house and you always knew you were in trouble if she was standing outside because she, you know, <laughs> after, after they took her license away. So she's standing outside and, you know, I came to visit her, but she got into my car and she said, I want you to take me somewhere. Now, she would never tell you where you were going. She would just say, turn right, turn left, turn here. And I mean, I ended up in all all, all kinds of places. You <laughs> wouldn't imagine, you know, an 80 something year old woman would be going right. to. But, but one of the things that she would do often is take us to a nursing home. Mm. And sometimes she knew somebody in the nursing home and sometimes Mm -hmm. she didn't know anybody. And one day she got in the car and she said, I hate nursing homes. (laughs) And I said, big mama, are you kidding me? Like you were always taking me to these nursing homes. What do you mean you hate nursing homes, right? Like it just Mm -hmm. didn't make any sense to me, but this is what big mama would do. When she went into the nursing home, we go from like the door, maybe let's say it was 15 steps. It might take us an hour to go from the door to take those 15 steps and then for her to turn around and go back out the door. (laughs) And sometimes she knew somebody and sometimes she didn't. Why did it take her so long? Because she would stop and touch every person she saw and she would look at them. She asked them how they were doing. She'd tell them some off color joke. You know, (laughs) she talked to all the people who were working there. She, you know, she would make her, make her way. And so when she said that to me, I big up, what are you saying? You're always taking me to these nursing homes. She said, yeah, I hate them, Deanna, but you know what? God gave us this gift and it's a free gift. We can walk around and we can give it away as much as we want to, and we'll always have it replenished. And that's the ability to make people smile. So what kind of fool would I be (sighs) if I didn't take that opportunity? And where would they need it the most? I hate going here, but I think this is where, you know, I could do that. I know I can do that. And, you know, so I think that's the thing, like, right. She didn't have like, she wasn't super wealthy. She didn't Mm -hmm. have, you know, fancy title, but she had power and she was willing to, uh, relinquish it. What she wanted to do was give it to other people so that they could increase their own power. 
That's amazing. That's really a powerful story. That's brilliant. I mean, you know, I think that's the other thing is like learning from our own um, grandmothers. You know, I, I could speak about mine. My grandmother is just like this incredible, resilient, sarcastic, badass woman who's, you know, she passed away seven years ago now, but um, there's so much wisdom that they hold that they were able to pass down to us. And it clearly that comes through for you with your grandmother's story. It's just that there's, again, so much of that um, value in I see you, which is again, you know, that conversation around diversity and equity inclusion is that how do we make sure that we have representation, you know, and making sure that people in marginalized communities are also being represented. They also have those opportunities in hand, you know, talking about relationships, her feeling the need that I want to, you know, God gave us that freedom to be able to walk and be everywhere. And she's creating those relationships and, that again comes through so beautifully with what you're doing and how you even just today spoke. So that story tells me so much more about you, Yvette, and your work. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I I, I stand on some really, really big shoulders and <laughs> um, feel really fortunate to have had a lot of women play a pivotal role in, you know, who, who I am and who I hope to be and what I want my legacy to be. But she is definitely at the top of that list. That's amazing. And... The last question I want to leave today with is asking you, what does an unapologetic woman mean to you? What are the traits, the skills, or what, what's, what is she and who is she? I think one of the things that I get most frustrated with, and so when you know younger women come to talk to me and they ask for advice, one of the things I will say to them is don't wait for permission. Mm. If there's something in your heart like that you know is your purpose. And if you have figured out a way to get there, don't wait for somebody to come along and say, it's okay for you to do it. I'm telling you right now, if that's what you're doing, boom, I'll do it for you. You have permission, like go, (laughs) go do it. Yeah. Because it doesn't do us any good to sit around with these brilliant ideas in our heart and these passions and, and just to sit on them. You know, it it really just doesn't do it. Go out, fail a little bit, learn a little bit try something, you know, help somebody else to, there's so mm-hmm. many things that need our attention that deserve our attention that could be better if we gave it our attention. But, you know, sometimes we, we wait for that mysterious permission. Yeah. And, and as women, we do that quite honestly. So I think the unapologetic woman is, doesn't wait for permission and <laughs> she goes out and she makes her mistakes and she, she sits in her feelings and she celebrates them and she shares them and then she moves on. And, yeah. you know, as she goes, she, she brings other people with her because she doesn't need permission to do that either. Right. right. She, she knows, knows who she is and, and she's good with it. I love that. I love that. Do not, you do not need to wait for permission. You are capable. You are able, you know, you're empowered. Like you have a talent, you have a genius, whatever it is, as small as it is, as big as it is, you don't need permission from anyone else and to move forward. I think that's beautiful. Deanna, I want to say thank you so much for being here today and to have this conversation. I know we're in the midst of the craziest week. And so, you know, hopefully by the time the episode actually comes out that, you know, we are on a, on a, on a more positive track in terms of everything you mentioned about empathy and relationships and really looking at the opportunities we have to build relations with people that are from the other side, because what really matters is bringing this country together. And 
of course, the work that you're doing is so impactful in that. And I wanted to ask you, how can some of you know the audience members, if they want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to connect with you? So I'm on um, you know all the different social media platforms, but mm-hmm. I think the one that I'm most active on is LinkedIn, but I'm on Facebook and also on Instagram. So feel free to reach out there. Our website is, um, if you are looking for a diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it's Uplifting Impact. Dot com. If you just want to see more about our social enterprise work and kind of all four social enterprises I'm running right now, you can go to DeannaSing.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Deanna. I really, really um, had a great time talking to you today and just hearing so much about your, your family background, your purpose, your passion, and how you've really cultivated that for and making an impact in communities all around. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been so fun to chat with you. Thanks for listening to The Unapologetic Woman. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe so you'll get real-time updates when I post a new episode. And if you really believe that others should be hearing this, then leave a rating or review this episode so others can find it too. And if there's something you'd really love for me to cover or highlight, then head over to my Instagram account at Pileberry. DM me to let me know. I'm all ears. If you want free resources, practical tips, and inspirational stories that I share with my clients, visit pileberry.com and subscribe to my newsletter. You'll get them all. Until then, take a moment to celebrate your journey, reflect, and be ready to embrace your next epiphany.